I hope you are having a great day. And if not, remember that the mercies and grace of God are new every morning, no matter how hard things become. I'm Josh, and this is We the Peace. We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. My name is Josh, and you are listening to We the Peace. Our second season is called Jesus-Centered Politics. This episode is titled Church as the Political Alternative Local Engagement. I have two amazing leaders, Michelle Reyes and Jose Humphreys, both authors, speakers, church planners, and national leaders in their own right. Michelle's forthcoming book with Zondervan is called Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Culture. Be looking out for that. And Jose's book with IVP is called Seeing Jesus in East Harlem, What Happens When Churches Show Up and Stay Put. It's exciting having you two on. Well, thanks for having us, Josh. I'm excited to be talking with you and Jose. Great to be here with you both. All right. So let's let's jump in. First, I want to hear a little bit about your ministries and your church settings. So Michelle, start us off. Yeah, definitely. So my husband and I were church planters here in Austin, Texas. And um, my my husband and I, we, we met in Chicago. Uh, we did grad school in Chicago, but it was always uh, the plan after grad school to come back to Austin, which is where he's from. Uh, he grew up uh, in East Austin, single mom, government housing, and it was always his heart to plant a church uh, in his own community. And so the name of our church is Hope Community Church. We are, and I say this intentionally, a minority-led multicultural church. Uh, my my husband is second-gen Mexican-American. I'm second-gen Indian-American, and over 50% of our congregants are Latino, many of whom are immigrants, uh, including un- undocumented. We are bilingual English-Spanish, and the next largest demographic is Asian, African-American, and then there's a small uh, percentage of Anglo-Americans are, you know, that we lovingly call our, our, our token white congregants. Uh, but in many ways, that, that breakdown of our church is a direct representation of the population of uh, East Austin. And I'm excited to talk about uh, what political engagement on the ground looks like, um, particularly as a church, because that's something that our church is very much involved in in the day-to-day. East Austin is historically where black and brown communities were forcibly located uh, in in the 1920s, and segregation has, 
has uh, exacted its toll, and we continue to see its toll in East Austin today. Yeah, West Austin is wealthy white. East Austin is black, brown, and and, and poor. And so, um, yeah, you know, the, there's a lot that could be said there, but uh, that that gives a little bit of the context of, of of where we're at and what we do. Yeah, Jose, how about how about yourself? A little bit about the context and the church. Sure. Uh- I'm a native New Yorker and uh, from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, so that's actually south of where we are right now in East Harlem. My wife and I, uh, oof, we met a long time ago. We just celebrated 25 years of marriage. Uh, people were like, what? How, how young did y'all get married? You know, I was like, yeah, I was a, I was a child groom, I guess. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we planted this church together back in 2007 with a group of others uh, with just questions and conversations more than anything else, rather than just like a set strategy, you know, what could a, uh, you know, a missional, that was like, I guess the language of the time, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-racial church look like when it uh, uh, adopts the, the, the priorities of those who have disinherited uh, specifically in East Harlem. And uh, when we responded to that call, uh, you know, we did it with a lot of naivete, as uh, many of us do as church planners. But if you were to ask me, well, you know, I guess this is the quick and dirty, uh, you know, almost uh, 14 years later, you know, how we describe ourselves, uh, we would say that we're, you know, a black and brown multiracial space uh, that is justice oriented. And, you know, maybe I can talk about what that really means later on. Uh, but we recognize that um, part of growing in our context here in East Harlem, where the, you know, and, and also the home of Harlem Renaissance uh, further uh, north and, and also towards central Harlem, we recognize that uh, we weren't here to uh, so much shape the context as much as that was going to be a conversation and an exchange. Yeah. And, and we've been very much shaped by uh, just our zip code, this neighborhood, and uh, we're a small ragtag group of people who uh, really love Jesus and uh, continue to take on the posture of learner in our community and, and are probably pretty responsive to some of the things that are happening here. So I'm proud to call um, this, this community, uh, you know, my community as well. That's a lot, right? Because a lot of times, you know, we, we fall out of love with our churches. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's encouraging to hear. So, I want to start off with a very broad question I'm asking everyone What is key to peace in the 21st century? And, Michelle, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's such a loaded question, too. <laughs> uh, particularly, you know, and you're asking me and, and Jose as, you know, Christians of color, which uh, our answers probably be very different than if you were asking an Anglo-American Christian. But as, as paradoxical as this might sound, I think that in many ways, the, the key to peace is conflict. Um, mm. And I say that because people need to be shaken up, right? <laughs> we, uh, we live so much according to the status quo and uh, black and brown bodies in this country, uh, as, as well as subdominant cultures around the world, are, are continue to be marginalized, oppressed, um, and, 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 and yet our, our, our experiences go unnoticed and uh, yeah. dismissed or, or erased, you know, and it's, it's in many ways that like that verse says in the Bible where people say peace, peace when there is no peace and our, our eyes are, are blinded um, by, by myths that, that taint our understanding of reality. And so 
Um, how do we shake things up? How do we That's really good. expose the cycles of violence and injustice that plague? Uh, well, and I'll speak just to the, the U.S. North American context. How do we get everybody on the same page to see things are not okay the way they are? Uh, only then can we move forward together um, to pursue true shalom for all. It's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that my uh, sister uh, just ended with that word, you know, shalom, because that in and of itself is uh, much that, that loaded word. People often relegate it to being a greeting, uh, you know, just a passing salute. Uh, but as we know, uh, in the Hebrew, it, it uh, you know, speaks to harmony and what uh, things look like when, when they're in right relationship. Yeah. And, and as we know, uh, right relationship, intimate relationship, trusting relationship can be messy. Uh, so uh, similar, I think, to what Michelle was saying, that uh, we, we need to engage uh, one another, um, I guess, beginning with the church, right? Having these conversations in the church uh, with a, a transformative uh, approach to dialogue. Uh, we need conversational practices and competencies that would allow us to enter into spaces where we're saying, um, you know what, we can't settle for uh, faux peace, uh, fake peace. Mm. Uh, you know, I think Dr. King was uh, the one that said that, uh, you know, uh, peace is not the absence of conflict. And uh, I, you know, just on a real personal level, you know, I'm pop- probably more pastoral than <coughs> than prophetic, though, um, you know, I'm the, I guess I'm the, just the type of dude that's just like, yeah, you may pick on me, that's one thing. But then when I see you picking on you know, I see the bullies working over someone else. That's when it just kind of comes out in me. Yeah. And uh, I, I really do think that um, I forgot who it was that said it, um, but uh, someone was talking about apocalyptic literature. Oh yeah. Brian Blount. And he says that, you know, the, the apocalyptic church, the church of, of the end days, right. Is called to pick a fight, to pick a good fight. And uh, I think it was also uh you know, John, the late John Lewis, who also says, make good trouble. Yeah. So as we think about this idea of, of peace, you know, it's funny that they were both using metaphors of conflict. <laughs> uh, so while this, I think, goes against the grain of, of, of church and how church churches often think about engagement, you know, uh, we, there are certain, there's a certain discipleship trajectory that's going to have to uh, have us come to terms with how we can become uh, confrontational in all of the loving ways that we can, which just sounds like paradox to her point. It's good. It's powerful. Well, listen, we're recording this December 10th, 2020. It's been quite the year to say it mildly <laughs> dumpster fires everywhere in our hearts and minds. I'm not even talking literally just how troubling it's been. You guys have both been leading people in your local setting through this election cycle, which has been horrifying and terrible and, and, and just challenging. Oh my goodness. Michelle, how has it been leading your people through this cycle? And how have you and your husband been and your leadership, you know, been pastoring people? It's and it's, it's been a tumultuous past four years, right? I mean, if we had more time, you know, we could even paint a, a picture of uh, our responses as a church after the 2016 election up through yeah. the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. But you know, to 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 put it briefly, there will always be people put at risk because of new leadership. And That's in right. fact, if we're being honest, most of the time, the poor, the vulnerable and the marginalized get caught in the crosshairs of politicking. And uh, we as a church felt that way um, even in this past election. And 
And in terms of some of the practical things on the grounds that we were doing uh, in the months leading up to the 2020 election, Aaron and another pastor in a local church here in Austin co-led a book club for our churches together to read and discuss the Anne campaign's latest book, Conviction and Compassion. Uh, and in many ways, our, our main efforts was to cast a theological framework for the importance of political engagement and to get people to vote. And we, we walked a lot of people through the logistics of registering and finding their local polling stations, which is a whole nother issue because yeah. our um, governor closed a lot of polling stations uh, right. in East Austin and in other places where poor uh, and, and black and brown people live, which is his own conversation. But if, if you want your community to be politically engaged, you have to make sure they have the proper access, knowledge and tools to engage and take, t- and that takes time and effort. That's um, so good. And then, you know, lastly, I'll say say this in terms of like that theological framework. We talked, we we spent a lot of time in Isaiah sixty one uh, about Jesus proclaiming to the that uh, proclaiming the good news to the poor, and and we should always seek to vote for leaders and officials whose policies will bring good news to the poor, the brokenhearted, and those who feel captive, as well as hold current leaders. Uh, accountable to that. And so I, I want to share something that may or may not be a popular opinion, but just because <laughs> Biden-Harris will be stepping into office doesn't automatically equate to them bringing good news to the poor. Mm. And I say this as someone who identifies as politically homeless. I'm just as skeptical and critical of the Democratic Party as I am of the Republican Party. Uh, and, and while conservatives sometimes openly uh, perpetuate racist rhetoric and disdain for the poor, Democrats often say they're pro-Black and pro-Brown but their politics and programs actually do more harm to us. And so our church knows that. And so while many did celebrate the 2020 election results, they did so cautiously Mm. knowing that there's still a lot of work to do ahead. Mm. Wow. That was so good. Uh, So leading your people in this, this election cycle and pastoring, how has that been for you, Jose? Yeah, I I think uh, our sermon series uh, reflected uh, a trajectory for us where we just wanted people to be thinking about um, what politics maybe look like in the Bible. And and people often create these separations like, oh, you know, uh, the, politics doesn't belong in the church or or it can't be uh, located somehow in the Bible. And it's so, it's so interesting, like, you know, when you take a look at, for example, the book of Esther, whenever you hear about edicts and thrones and scepters, like, those are all like uh, political symbols, right? Uh, so we, we focus on a couple of uh, sermon series, one being on, on the kingdom and how the kingdom of God is that alternative reality and what uh, does the politics of Jesus look like and how does it contrast Caesars, right? And when you get people looking at those uh, contrasts between uh, Jesus and Caesar and how even Paul uh, used the word Lord uh, subversively because Caesar was Lord and uh, so for him to say Jesus is Lord, I mean, it meant also to say Jesus, uh, that Caesar is not. So uh, I, I think part of that, just that, that formation process was just getting, giving people some, some political tools and language to be able to talk about these things differently. Because uh, one of the things I would share with my people is, what do, you, uh, what do your politi- political debates even look like? Are you basically regurgitating Fox 5 sound bites or CNN sound bites or uh, CNBC sound bites? Or do we actually have like a distinct language for how we actually talk about this? Because uh, if you see it on Facebook and if you see it on the threads, you can, you can tell, hey, people have been discipled in their politics by 
a specific uh, network or even a Christian broadcast network, not mentioning any names specifically. So uh, we thought that it would be just very important to be able to give people a little bit more language, just, just, just be able to talk about this. And then we, we, we did, of all things, you know, a couple of people winced, but like, uh, we, we, we did the, a study on the book of Revelation. And um, so we talked about how, how we were going to place this moment, it could be the last four years too, right, Michelle? <laughs> but these last like intense six moments as an apocalyptic moment, yeah. right? It's a revelation, right? What, what was revealed to us, damn, racism is, is just as intense as the pandemic. And, and you know what? It's actually been around a lot longer. What else do we see? Wow, this is a public health issue. Uh, you know, our people, black and brown folks specifically, are being disproportionately hospitalized and hit and, and even dying. So what, what is being revealed to us? And in our politics now, how do we respond uh, to this as faithful Christians? And we just did it on a very local level. Who's in need? How can we help? Uh, how can we raise up a benevolence fund to help those uh, who are not able to make rent? How can we support some local businesses that are now being hit by the pandemic? Because that's one of the economic um, you know, fallouts of the pandemic. Yeah. Small businesses in East Harlem are suffering. And we have a bunch of, of relationships with a, a lot of the business owners. So we have to get creative around um, how we could target uh, people's uh, purchasing dollars, which, guess what, is part of the local politic as well and how mm. um, resources circulate in neighborhoods. So uh, I think it, for us it was a, a framing and also unapologetically uh, the, the framing was that, you know, we weren't really dealing with uh, a Republican or a Democratic element here. We're, we, we were actually, I think, another four years, we would have been born bordering on neo-fascism. You know, I think if another four years of, of what, would have, what would have continued. So for us, it was just like uh, Trump is and was a, dis, a very distinctive element that, yeah. that I even think the Bible talks about when, you know, the people uh, uh, who are being persecuted are, are talking about in code. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, we, we went in a few different directions that allowed people to be grounded and whatever way they voted, at least they, they recognized similar to what Michelle was saying, that it was important for people to be politically engaged and and not disconnected. Yeah. That's really powerful. So in what ways have you seen either your local church or local churches struggling to deal with and address politics in a healthy way? I'll say two things, and, and, and I'll, I'll speak to my context and talk about urban churches. And Many urban churches are actually not local churches to begin with. They're commuter churches, and this is true even among black and brown congregations or multicultural churches. They are primarily wealthier folks driving in from the suburbs, uh, and here's why this is a problem. The, the church uh, and its people don't know their own context. They don't rub shoulders with the people who live in the houses to the left and the right of of the, the, the church building and they don't know the problems of that area because they're not living there. And they they also don't share the same experiences because of being in different socioeconomic brackets. And so not only are they not proximate to real uh, struggles and, and pains, uh, but it's not personal. And if you're in that situation as a leader of a church, you're going to have to work to intellectually and emotionally convince your congregants to engage politically and, and, and otherwise. Now, the folks in your in our church, you don't have to convince them to care about the current immigration crisis at the border because the majority of them are immigrants or mass incarceration or um, 
you know, similar sorts of issues because they're living it. Their family and friends are impacted by it. It's real. It's personal. Of course, they want us as a church to be involved in these issues. Um, And more than that, the second thing I'll say is that a true local church will have their vocational ministry and any sort of civic engagement led by actual leaders from within that community. These are the people who represent the community in terms of social, cultural, economic, political backgrounds who get the people and know how best to care for them. So um, this is where narrative justice comes in. It's not about well-intentioned, you know, white folks from the suburbs or elsewhere coming in and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to save East Austin (laughs) or I'm going to save Harlem or, or LA or something like this. It's, it's utilizing our resources, our, 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 our privilege, our platforms to empower folks within that community. Um, you know, if we want to make real lasting change for the kingdom in poor and disadvantaged communities and, and actually be politically engaged as a church and ways that are whole and authentic and just, we need to make sure that leaders from those communities direct our church as head pastor, as directors of our ministries, relief efforts. They know best how to direct strategy and decision-making um, and, 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 and political uh, spaces are no difference. And I truly believe we could have avoided so many tragedies, especially in the church and particularly in the church's efforts to mobilize for civic engagement. Uh, if Christians of color from those local contexts had been at the leadership table, serving as head pastor and being empowered to be the loudest and lead voices of that community. That's good. Wow. You know, I, I had a, a, a bishop, an elder bishop one uh, recently uh, make this distinction and I thought it was obvious and then it wasn't. And, and, and it was with regard to politics. He, he says that one of the mistakes that the church makes is that it mistakes itself for the, the kingdom of God. So the church thinks it's the kingdom and if you think about that distinction and then our approach to neighborhoods and politics, it makes a difference because when the church thinks it's the kingdom, it, it needs to be the flagship of a community. It's not to Michelle's point coming alongside of neighbor, uh, participating in, in civically, uh, thinking about how they can just learn from other nonprofits or, uh, elected officials who have been there maybe years yeah. even before. So it's, it's just, it, it's a, so when, when we realize who we are as a church, we, that we're not the kingdom, we decenter ourselves. And then the politics of the kingdom can serve to not usurp or, or to coerce an agenda, uh, but to really come alongside, right? The work of the Holy spirit. Right. And uh, so the way that I see that is that when, uh, the church decenters itself and appropriately uh, finds its place incarnationally, right? It's this self-emptying, right? The Philippians 2 moment uh, and takes on the posture of Jesus, then yeah, uh, the, the local pastor and, and residents are going to be, uh, or church members are going to be in the know about what is hurting this community now. Well, we know it's gentrification. Well, that's one thing. Who's hurting? Small, uh, small and local businesses as well. Uh, the disparities are increasing in terms of uh, the economics and the wealth gap. And and how is it that the church can begin to address these? Well, if we really thought we were the the, the flagship, then we've gotten grandiose because ain't, ain't no ain't no force is strong enough 
that are going to stop the forces of gentrification. That's going to be the slow work of the kingdom, of, of cultivation, of, of sitting down with uh, uh, organizations that have advocated for affordable housing uh, long before us and who can teach us how it is that we can be a voice in that. Or even specifically, uh, when uh, white members move into East Harlem or uh, people who are of higher economic uh, social status, how is it that they're going to move in their bodies through our community? Yeah. You as a white-bodied person uh, with economic advantages or maybe four times the median income of our neighborhood, when you think about just the, the, the politics and the economics of it, how, how will you move through uh, this neighborhood, this zip code in your body? And um, that's going to be look, looking different for uh, a, an Asian body or, or a brown body. Or, you know, we're all moving in the same direction, but we're also very moving distinctively uh, as we engage um, the, the life of the community and then in the politics of it, which is how resources are arranged, distributed, and um, benefited from. So these are the conversations, you know, if you're thinking about it just on a local church level, uh, it starts, you know, on the pulpit, but it's, it's also just a lot of just neighboring, right? Just uh, taking walks with folks and just curating. And, and that I often do that. I'll, I'll be curating the neighborhood for folks because when people get a sense of, of where they are, then they can uh, respond, I think, discerningly and appropriately to the politics. Yeah. I'm hearing both of you speak a lot about embodied expressions of, of Christianity, space matters, geography matters, taking those into consideration as we think about local politics. Um, skip around a little bit with our last few questions. I want to talk about unity, and Jose, I'll ask you first. What does it look like to have unity in your church on issues of, of politics? What does unity look like for you and your people? I, I guess in my context, you know, we know that uh, New York is a blue uh, state in general, and we have a couple of patches of red. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I would say, you know, I'm not dealing with the same complexities as some of my uh, colleagues who have, you know, equal representation of, you know, Republicans and, and maybe Democrats in the church. And so they're, their sermons are going to be kind of going in a different direction. It might be more as diplomat ambassador or, but prophetic, I'm sure in some ways. So I, I think the way that we find some um, political unity is uh, by finding how the values of the kingdom might align with a local political agenda. And, and I think that that's something that people can get with. Uh, so the way that I think we work with people through that is to uh, dismantle any sense of th this dichotomy between the, the sacred and the secular. Because that, that, that really does get in the way. If you look at what Michelle said earlier in her reference to Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4, uh, everything that Jesus talks about in his platform when he comes out and, uh, and opens up the scroll, you know, uh, to liberate the oppressed, set the captive free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Those are all very concrete things that dealt with the polis, with, 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 with the social world. <laughs> and it's so interesting to me that none of, none of that was, to your point, disembodied. Like this is, 
This is actually about people. This is actually about poor people. This is actually about uh, people who are who are captive. This is actually about people who are oppressed. This is actually maybe about policies and practices that keep uh, people underfoot. This is about the disinherited. So uh, when when we take politics out of this idea of ideology, which is where a lot of politicians stay, right? Where you know you hear Republican and uh, Democratic talking points, they might get to, to actual tangible policies. Uh, but often they don't, you know, it's, it's, it kind of stays in this heady realm. So I think uh, for us uh, to be able to just talk about this stuff and and say, hey, when we are um, sitting in the PTA, know that this is also a, um, a political act of defiance as well, uh, because many of these schools are under resources, resourced and uh, neglected. And your presence there as an agent of the kingdom, that Luke chapter four kingdom, that that platform, that political platform uh, means that you you stand there as an ambassador and you are going to challenge uh, powers, principalities, structures and systems. And something that's often um, overlooked processes, even the way that we run a meeting, where does the power go? Right. It's that nitty gritty down, down to earth uh, thing. Who's at the, the, the seat of the table at the head of the table? Well, you know, maybe with your presence there, whether you're a, a, like I mentioned, a, a, a concerned parent or you are um, a corporate person sitting at, at, at a shiny board table. How are you in your embodied presence reflecting the kingdoms of that political platform? of liberating the oppressed, setting the captive free, declaring the year of the Lord's favor. And I think that that, when we give people concrete examples, when we get out of the world of ideology, what we're really doing is saying, this is incarnational. So let, let, let's, not, let's not have conversations if we're not talking about bread and, 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 and fish, <laughs> right? Uh, let, let's talk about concrete realities um, as they relate to the kingdom, so. I love that. I love that because, you know, there's so much of the mantra of like keeping church and politics separate. Right. And and I love your challenge to be like, no, we're supposed to be agents of political change in whatever space we're in. That's so good. Yeah, it's a uh, it's hard one, because when we um, when we get caught up in those like highfalutin sound bites that are like thirty six thousand feet up in the air, uh, we, we miss the opportunities uh, that you had mentioned as well. Uh, to really go local and to think about, you know, how, how local politics has such an impact versus like all the other stuff that's happening. Like, yeah. So I'd love to hear more from you on that too. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'll, I'll say this, I think, and you've hit on it too, in terms of unity in our church on, on politics, I think the first thing is you need to give space for differing views, right? We're not a monolith. None of us are. Uh, you could line up 10 Asian Americans or 10 African Americans <laughs> or Latinos or Anglo Americans, and we'd all hold different perspectives. And so unity is not about all thinking the same way. Rather, it's learning about how to get out of our own head and to mm-hmm. learn to see an issue from someone else's perspective and to make their needs personal. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, it's, it's Basically, unity means not making politics all about us. (laughs) Political engagement for followers of Jesus must be an extension of our call to love our neighbors, always. Mm. And it can never be rooted in self-interest or what benefits me personally the most. And 
if we're going to pave better, more just paths moving forward, then each of us needs to be willing to change, adapt, and transform how we think politically included in how we live our lives. And so if you're a white Anglo-American, your understanding of justice probably looks different than a person of color, right? If you're an Asian-American like myself, my, my dream of a just world looks slightly different than for an African-American or Native American. And so we have to be constantly asking ourselves, do I know the dreams of, of, of justice mm. and, and shalom and wholeness that other people and community of col- communities of color have? And how can I better live into and pursue those dreams as well? And in fact, how do I prevent my own personal dreams of justice from blocking out or erasing other people's longings and needs for justice in, in their context too? And I, I don't think we can even begin to answer those questions unless as, as a church, we are spending uh, creating communal space for lament, communal space for prayer and communal space for celebration. Um, we have to care about the issues not directly impacting us, right? It's easy right. for me as an Indian American to raise my voice in the year 2020 because of anti-Asian racism from COVID-19. Uh, but we have to be humble enough to believe someone's story, even when it doesn't reflect our own reality. And we should never say it's not happening to me. Therefore it's not important or worse. Therefore it must not be true. The issue of justice just, it has to be something that we, or we should never discuss justice from one singular point of view. We have to Mm. get out of our own heads. We need to step out of our own histories and stories and be willing to embrace and embody those of other cultural groups and, and, and especially those who have been impressed. And so um, if we can do that, I think we'd be moving toward the path of unity. Just, just a small suggestion. It's <laughs> good. That's good. As we move to wrap things up, I want to get to our Lord and savior, Jesus. When we think about Jesus centered politics, when you think of the ministry of Jesus as uh, Michelle and Jose, you reflect on, that right now and the politics that uh, Jesus, our King, is is promoting through this grassroots, beautiful, these quiet moments in ancient Palestine that end up being very disruptive to Michelle's opening answer. Uh, how are you teaching your people as you're reading the Gospels and as you're walking through these stories and as that expands into the epistles and all these beautiful moments in the New Testament? What does a Jesus-centered posture look like? What do the politics of Jesus look like as you are teaching your people? When I hear that question, I think about uh, Jesus with uh, James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee. And mama comes along and she's like, yo, Jesus, I want... I want these guys, James and John, to to sit at your left and your right hand when the kingdom comes. And, uh, of course, you know, the other disciples, I guess, catch uh, earshot of this and they're incensed about it. And uh, and then Jesus uh, responds to a concerned mom. You know, this is actually the, the question of every parent, right? Hey, I want my kid to get into the best school. I want them to be well positioned. I I want them to be uh, politically proximate to power so that they can get through in life. And, you know, he's speaking to, you know, ragtag minority uh, under the foot of Rome at that, at that point. And, and what Jesus said, what, what they were looking for was that political proximity to power. And Jesus turns it over on his head and Jesus says, well, you know, Gentiles, 
they want to lord it over you. This is kind of their approach to politics. Uh, it's very top down. It's uh, it's a it's about Pax Romana, which isn't in. We began with Pax, right? It isn't an authentic kind of peace, but it's a peace that comes uh, through intimidation. You see all those crosses uh, riddling uh, the side roads and uh, all those people hanging from those trees. This is what what Rome uh, thinks about peace. Uh, so Jesus is creating these images about, uh, you know, what peace is. And he says, uh, while they'll try to lord it over you, actually, uh, you who, whoever wants to be the greatest among you must become a servant of them all. And he was flipping that, that the politics of Caesar uh, to show them what they should aspire to. And what I'm talking here is, is more of an aspiration and a process as, a, as, 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 as opposed to just a result. Uh, don't aspire to those things, those images of uh, the, the Photoshop, you know, with you and Biden or, or whoever, Trump, uh, but aspire not to the best seat at the table, uh, but also aspire to make sure that, that people are represented at the table and that at this table, there is enough for everyone. And, and to Michelle's point earlier, uh, that means that, uh, it's a. It's also a conversational table. This this table of the kingdom. It's it's uh, uh, asking questions like who's missing. It's uh, developing a sacred curiosity to know what other people's dreams are as well. That uh, I love what Octavia Butler Butler once wrote. She's a, a science fiction writer, African American. When she says, "I have to be careful with this utopian talk because my utopia can be somebody else's hell." Right. And and so in our um, desire for justice, um, we, we need a more complete uh, picture of what uh, Christ uh, himself was bringing forth when he was talking about what leadership in the kingdom looks like and how resources are distributed and how people are included and what it actually means to be a person of status. That's so good. I think I'm just going to reiterate what Jose <laughs> said, uh, you know, speaking of the sons of Zebedee, I, I was thinking about Mark 1 and in the sense that our our church knows that Jesus's proclamation of the gospel is synonymous with justice. Both seek the restoration of all things. And when Jesus enters into human history, we read that in Mark 1, we see that he comes to give people what they're due. And mm. giving people their due is exactly what restorative not retributive justice is all about. Jesus sees the hurting, the sick, and the marginalized and declares they have the right to be restored back into society. They have the right to good health and uh, declares that they have the right to be uh, equal treatment and same resources as everybody else. And uh, in the same way that Jesus, in his inbreaking kingdom, went about preaching salvation while also healing the sick, we too must live a life that seeks to restore the relationship between God and humanity holistically. And, and this means seeking to maintain the dignity of black and brown lives, honoring the voices and bodies of women, and caring for those experiencing homelessness. And it means practicing the cross-shaped art of forgiveness in our relationships, Amen. as well as using our money and influence to change unjust policies, as well as voting for leaders who will run our cities and states and country with justice and equity. And I think, you know, if, if we're saying anything, we're saying that we need to reconsider what it means to be Christian the way of the gospel is not about being part of the political right or the political left. We, our way as followers of Jesus is the middle way, a path in which people of faith play a unique role in protecting the weak, safeguarding the sacred, and promoting a just peace. So we 
are active within social and civic matters because we're focusing on the gospel. You know, you hear so many Christians say, let's just focus on the gospel. And we're, we're over here saying this is the gospel <laughs> <laughs> and seeking to advance God's kingdom on earth. And it's, it's, it's time to bring the good news of the gospel yeah. to every aspect of our life and society. Um, the same way that the pastor spoke these words after Ferguson, it's time to bring the church to the streets. Mm. Amen. Listen, that's a good start. As you're referencing stories from the life of Jesus and giving practical examples of how we get to work, it's a beautiful world that, that you two are painting, and it's exciting the work that you're doing in East Austin and East Harlem. So I wanted to thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is great. So grateful to be able to build with Michelle and, and, and meet you, Josh. Hi again, everyone. I have five quick takeaways from this interview. It was awesome having Dr. Reyes and Pastor Humphreys. Thanks for joining us, you two. So the political posture of local churches should be one, local, allowing local representation in church spaces. Two, the political posture of local churches should be disruptive. The politics of Jesus should be shaking things up locally. Three, it should be preached and taught. So this is by leaders and also through their theology. Four, it should be discussed. It should be a common conversation according to these two leaders, leaving room for disagreement. And five, it should be empowering, giving those without a voice a platform and a voice to activate politically in the local church setting. This podcast called We The Peace can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most places where podcasts land. Blessings as you seek to embody the peace of Jesus wherever you are. <laughs>